You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening once again. It is Tuesday the 3rd of August and as I look out of my Salford base, it is an absolutely glorious morning here in the northwest. It seems the sun is shining again as it certainly did yesterday in Tokyo for Britain's athletes again where I was lucky enough to call the eventing gold medal a, a truly memorable moment. And the man who was on hand is of course our good friend Rishi Pasad who hasn't been on this podcast for ages. I'll be talking to him a little bit later on. But let's focus on what we're here to do which is of course uh, the racing. We build up to the Shergar Cup this week at Ascot. There's Group 1 action in France today. The pre-Rothschild Mother Earth, the Guineas winner up against Primo Baccio who was rather luckless in that golden Falmouth stakes. But perhaps the big international racing news today comes from Melbourne with the release of the entry for this year's Melbourne Cup. Now, why is this so much more interesting this year? Well, it's not just because of the pandemic. It's because of the new veterinary measures that have been brought in, scintigraphy and CT scans before horses travel from Europe and then a standing CT scan when they arrive in Melbourne because of the fatalities that have taken place in the Cup over the last few years. Now, if you go back to episode 213, April the 28th, you will hear real strength of feeling when these measures were announced and a real genuine fear that there would be no European entries in the race. Well, there are in fact 15. It's significantly down. It's half of last year's entry. Now, in a moment, I will be talking to Lee Jordan, who's the executive general manager of the Victoria Racing Club. But first of all, another Lee, our own Lee Mottishead. Uh, Lee, you are a long-time devotee of this great race. Looking at this entry and with 15 euros in there, how does it make you feel? I think it makes me feel slightly reassured in the sense that we do have some international interest in this year's Spring Carnival and in particular the Melbourne Cup. I think it's probably as good as anybody within the VRC or Racing Victoria could have hoped for, but we haven't got Aidan O'Brien trained horses in the race and we haven't got any British-based good dolphin horses who have been two of the biggest supporters of the meeting. So it's not as bad as it might have been, but equally it's not as good as it could have been. That said, officials at the Victoria Racing Club are putting a fairly positive spin on the European entry. And I've been talking to Lee Jordan, who's the executive general manager, and asked him why. Nick, I think with everything that's gone on, obviously with uh, Racing Victoria did the injury review, they've introduced um, you know more diagnostic testing for international horses coming out here, which I know hasn't been well received and um can i say on that front um you know the club really values our international participation i mean we really rely on internationals coming here so that was not put in place to deter people coming here we want europeans to be running in our race we have 750 million viewers around the country around the world sorry that the tune into the melbourne cup and it has made the race international participation and um Look, and when you bring in these sorts of measures, there are reaction, and I'm hoping that you know when we review it after this cup, that we can 
maybe there, there's some tweaking that Racing Victoria can be done, you know, can do to these measures, and we can see more participation. But really, 15 under that situation, also COVID, which is difficult for people to travel. Um, you know, we, we've got a really good spread of international nominations. Spanish Mission, Andrew Balding, who you know won the Yorkshire Cup, ran third in the Ascot Gold Cup, and Joseph has nominated Twilight Payment that won the Melbourne Cup last year, and he's a couple of other nice horses, Baron Semity that won the Group Two Belmont Cup in the US, and and Benno, a three-year-old um, that ran a, a nice race behind Kamari in the Queen's Vase. So um, it, it is a really nice spread of horses. You've got representation from, or potential representation anyway, from a, a decent spread of trainers. Just looking here, Dave O'Mara, Roger Varian, David Simcock, Charlie Fellows, Johnny Murta, as you say, Andrew Balding, Martin Meads, Lone Eagle, the three-year-old in there as well, potentially interesting runner. However, there is no Aidan O'Brien. Were you reconciled to that already? How much dialogue had you had with him about whether he was going to enter horses in the Melbourne Cup? Yes, um, Aiden, look, Aiden has his view on, on the measures and we respect that. And he indicated to us, uh, the club, um, a while ago, a month or six weeks ago, that um, he would be entering, nominating any horses. So we, we knew that that was the case. And um, as I said, hopefully we'll get through the carnival, see how this all works. Racing Victoria do a debrief. We'll examine how everything went, see how these horses come through, and um, yeah, there could be some tweaks that, that we may have to do to um, uh, to these requirements. But I mean, we we had to do something. Um, we couldn't continue with the deaths in the race. I mean, I said before the the amount of people that watch the race from around the world. Uh, we have to make it our safest race. Um, that's not uh, again saying that we won't review it afterwards. There could be some changes. So at the moment, it's a scintigraphy and a standing CT scan before horses leave for Australia, and then there's a standing CT scan on arrival. From what you know, would you be confident that any issues would be picked up before horses fly so that there wouldn't be the situation we had a couple of years ago whereby horses trained by Godolphin and Huey Morrison would arrive in Australia and then suddenly something would show up? I think, Nick, that's probably one of the other reasons for doing it. So we don't we don't have that situation. Uh, it's, it's not great for trainers and connections to travel all the way out here um, and, and, you know, then find out there's an issue. So hopefully that will be the case. But, look, you know, there's um, very good horsemen all around the world that know their horses and will probably know um, how they'll go with the testing. So, uh, but you're right, that's, that's why part of the reason for introducing it so that they don't have to make the trip out here and then find out an issue. So it's, I'm not saying this is an experimental year, but you're almost feeling your way back into an increased international participation. That's what it feels like to me. You're, you're, you're starting with quite a harsh policy and then sort of trying to nuance your, your way to something that would be maybe acceptable to, to more people. Is that is that what you're sort of hinting at? Look, that's, that's my view. And, um, you know, I... <laughs> There's obviously the Racing Victoria Veterinary Panel and um, the stewards that will have to review it. But I think, um, let's, as I said, let's see how it goes, see how horses um, come out, um, how the system works. Uh, we'll obviously keep in contact with our trainers as we have been and connections, see how it all goes. And, you know, yeah, there may be some tweaks that we can do, um, some minor changes um, to what, what we've introduced. And hopefully that may, you know, that may uh, be the way forward. Lee, what's Melbourne Cup Day going to feel like in, in 2021? 
Well, it's interesting, Nick, because last year we obviously didn't have a crowd. We were impacted by COVID. Uh, we have a lot of planning within the club. We are um, trying to plan for $60,000, uh, $60,000, 60000 crowd every day, a Derby, Cup, uh, Oaks and final day. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. We had an, a lockdown recently here in Victoria with COVID. We're over that. Uh, we're working closely with the government. Uh, we would have seen Royal Ascot uh, go through similar uh, scenario. We're looking at you know, what measures we can put in place till we get 60,000. So we really want to crowd back. Um, we sort of see it in our discussions with the government that this, the event, the Melbourne Cup, could be the way out of this whole COVID situation and a chance for Victoria to get together and really celebrate um, you know, the Melbourne Cup and just you know, coming out of COVID. Lee Jordan there, the Executive General Manager of the Victoria Racing Club. And it's quite important to make that distinction between the Victoria Racing Club who run this event and Racing Victoria who are the um, governing administrator of racing in Victoria. It's two different institutions. So the governance is laid down by Racing Victoria. Uh, Lee Mottishead, what did you make of that? Um, I think Lee um, was 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 very interesting actually there, Nick. Um, I thought he, as you say, he was putting a a brave face on but I think to an extent there would have been a fair degree of sincerity about that because they could well have been expecting almost nothing at all when it came to international numbers so strong was the reaction when the Racing Victoria led changes were announced earlier in the year um, they have got some interesting horses in there they've got the Melbourne Cup staple Prince of Aaron who's trainer Charlie Fellows is going to monitor the situation over the next month in terms of his horse's development before they come to make a decision. They've got Joseph O'Brien horses in there and they've got a smattering of horses from, from other yards as well. And as you say, or as he said, he wasn't really expecting Aiden O'Brien. He'd already given his indication to them and he'd spoken publicly about it as well. I thought what was interesting too, Nick, was in response to your question, Lee pretty much admitted that this is a... A learning year. It's a year in which they they want to test the ground, see how things go, with maybe a view to changes being made next year, tickles to to the system. But I think that the, there is no doubt that what we have this year is a very different spring carnival, a very different Melbourne Cup to the ones that we've known before. And, and you 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 prefaced at the start of the the conversation that I'm a devotee of of this race and that, that whole spring in, in Australia. And I absolutely am. I adore it. The, the, the Melbourne Cup is probably my favourite flat race in the entire calendar. Um, and I've been fortunate to to be there on, on four occasions. And on all those four occasions, um, I've seen some great things, but also some things that haven't been so, so marvellous to see. And one thing I think that has been noticeable across those four years was that the, the Melbourne Cup parade that takes place on the eve of of the Melbourne Cup down Swanson Street, one of Melbourne's um, most important roads going into Federation Square. You have lines of people cheering the, the the cars with the connections as they come down Swanson Street. But the number of protesters has risen every year. Um, they become more vocal um, and they've been listened to more. And it has presented big problems for the VRC and Racing Victoria. And that's because... Although our horses, our international horses, our European horses have kept winning the Melbourne Cup, our horses have also kept dying. Um, we can't get around the fact that the, the, the problem has been caused by international horses. Um, no local horse has been killed in the Melbourne Cup for 42 years, whereas in the last eight running, six international horses have died uh, due to injury sustained on the track. 
the four who suffered catastrophic limb injuries, Verema, Radcado, Cliffs of Moore, and Anthony Van Dyke were European uh, base horses. And since 2018 as well, three international horses lost their lives at the Werribee quarantine facility. So I think what's happened, understandably, is that local trainers, local owners, local racing fans, local racing administrators, I think, have taken the view that our horses have come into Melbourne, they have created a problem, but it's a problem that they have to to clear up. You know, the Melbourne Cup, the Spring Carnival, it's their thing, it's their race, it's their festival. They have to have a responsibility towards it. Um, and although none of the connections of the horses that have lost their lives representing international stables in Melbourne would have wanted that to happen, it certainly wasn't intentional and they'll have been devastated by it. It remains the fact that it's the VRC, it's Racing Victoria, it's the racing clubs over there that have to solve the problem. They've had to do something. Um, it is disappointing. It will look like a very different Melbourne Cup this year. You never know. We might still get an international train winner. But I, I, I do understand why they have made the changes they've made. I think they do genuinely fear for the future of the Melbourne Cup. TV audiences have been dwindling over there. They've certainly been going down a lot in recent years. There was a change of broadcast which might have impacted on that. But but there's definitely, I think, a fear within within the authorities over there for, for the Melbourne Cup. Therefore, they felt they had to do something along these lines. Ironically, there's also competition, Nick, from the north, from from Sydney, you know, th th they are creating races at the same time to try and eat away at the horses running in these spring carnival races. So they face competition from from that as well. So they're they're in a difficult situation. I I for, for many reasons I, I really lament what they've done, but equally I, I totally understand it. And I think in the circumstances, they'll look at this year's nominations and they'll think, well, we'll probably take that given given the the, the backdrop of what's going on. And, of course, Lee Jordan talked about the likelihood of a big crowd at the Melbourne Cup, which is fantastic. News crowds, of course, returning slowly but surely to, to UK race courses. Uh, it's not all with happy consequences, as Dave Yates and Tom Stanley talked about yesterday uh, with some fighting at Goodwood last week. There was a nasty incident at Lingfield that's been reported, Lee, that it's got, it's got to have everybody concerned this, where a car tried to drive into three racegoers after, after the music concert. Yeah, I, I'm re really bad, Nick, really bad. Um, I talked about this in, in my column on, on Monday as well in the Racing Post, the, the concerns about um, crowd behaviour on race courses, the concerns about excessive drinking and drug taking on race courses. And sometimes you write a, a column and you, you, you tweet about it and you get very little reaction. Sometimes you get a proper snowball of, of reaction. This was one of those which suggests to me it's something that racing fans are genuinely concerned about. Um, and I think when they read about this Lingfield story, they will become ever more concerned. I mean, th there have been issues at Lingfield in the past. Those those Saturday night Lingfield uh, meetings, the music nights there, they haven't been loved by the local community. Um, there have been stories in the past of a mess made around Lingfield after them. That, that's been repeated here. We quote a lady called uh, Lola Farley, a resident in Lingfield for over 20 years who said it was the worst I've ever, ever seen. There were people urinating on the pavements, the state of the people. They were walking the road. There was just no control over anything. Quite a few of my friends have commented Commented it was disgusting. The litter, the bottles being thrown, the fighting. I've been to Magaluf, but this was just crazy. So I, I can't comment on Magaluf, Nick, having never been there. But I have seen uh, some unpleasant scenes on race courses. And I think this is a growing concern. Clearly, 
it's it's linked to societal issues. We saw what happened at the Euros. We've seen other disturbances on our city streets in the past. But it's, it, if it's happening on race courses, it becomes racing's problem. Um, it seems to be that, well, there seem to be certain race courses that have the problem more than others. Good would have had a number of issues. Newbury have, Lingfield have, but there'll be many other race courses where it's taking place. And I think there's, there's clearly racing can't change society, but racing can change how it pleases race courses. Um, and, I, and I do think that more, more money has to be spent. It, w- it will be a financing. Um, now, clearly, race courses don't want their 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 crowds to feel like they're walking around a police state. They, they there will be some people who will feel slightly uncomfortable walking around a race course if it's full of beefed up security guards and police officers. But a balance will need to be struck because, for all that racing is absolutely right to chase a new audience because eventually all the existing audience will die. You need to have new people coming into the sport. The real danger is that you alienate the current audience, the existing audience, those people that will will be going to a race meeting to watch the racing. And like it or not, race courses are going to have to spend more money. Of course, you don't have to run your good racing on a weekend. France have got a Group 1 race today, Tuesday, the pre-Rothschild Group 1 race, and not without significant interest with Mother Earth, the Guineas winner, and Primo Baccio in, in opposition coming out of that golden Falmouth stakes. Yeah, I mean, what a wonderful midweek treat this is, Nick. I, I don't know why um, the, the France Gallo has changed this to a uh, a Tuesday card, but it really is an absolute treat. Um, we've seen how strong the the three-year-old fillies are this season. We saw how strong the three-year-old miling fillies were with alcohol-free winning the Sussex States and Snow Lantern finishing third. So that, that division we know is deep. This is a race that features, you say, Mother Earthy, the 1,000 Guineas winner who's continued to run very well since then. Uh, November, Prima Baccio bring, bring very strong form from Ascot and Newmarket. Some high-class French fillies in there as well. It's an absolute belter. And it's not just the, it's not the only interesting race on the card. Nick. All through the afternoon at Deville, there'll be, there'll be fascinating contests. Um, British representation with Mystery Angel um, in a Malna Quarter Group 3. Uh, she represents George Bowie and James Doyle. So, yeah, the, the, the Olympics won't be the only source of sporting entertainment for we racing fans today. <laughs> Which leads me almost seamlessly on to a man who I was lucky enough to share a broadcast platform with yesterday for the first time in a long time, uh, this podcast apart, of course. Uh, Rishi Passad, come in Tokyo. Hi, Lucky. Today, one of the great days. You you were you were reporting at the at the eventing yesterday. How was how was it there? How I mean I I'm calling it from thousands of miles away. How was it being being arena side? I understand people watching it not seeing any crowds may think that there's a lack of atmosphere. But in terms of tension and in terms of emotion that you experience, it was no different than when I've been to other major events and there's been significant British interest. Uh, so close to uh, in the build-up to certainly the team uh, show jumping at the um, eventing yesterday uh, there was so much emotion and the nerves and the tension that you associate with previous experiences just like that was certainly the same as it's ever been um, and so therefore the celebrations even though there weren't huge crowds there there was just smattering of uh, of interested individuals the celebrations and the emotions were just like any any major success. I mean, there were a few themes that I thought we we explore a lot on this on this podcast with with racing, especially about 
you know, mobility in, in horse sport. And Oliver Townend made the point that nobody on that team was from an especially privileged background, particularly not he or or, or Laura, Laura Collett, even though Tom McEwen's got a background in horses. And none of, yeah. from particularly wealthy backgrounds. And not only that, the the winner of the individual competition, Julia Krajewski, the first woman to, to win an individual in a in a competition where men and women have been able to compete on, on equal footing for, for a long time. But still, nonetheless, both those things I thought quite significant. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I know Oliver Townend, um, his story has been played out a number of times, but I think it's worth repeating. The fact that yeah, he, he started off, uh, when he decided to, to, to really make a go of it, you know, what is it, nearly 20 years ago when he, he decided to, to set up a stable in, in Leicestershire. And he had, he had just over a grand to his name. Uh, and he had no horses. Um, and he just had a lot of hopes and dreams and his talent in the saddle. Um, but it proves, I mean, he said it when I spoke to him yesterday, he said it himself, you know, uh, a kid from, from the, the hilly outskirts of, of Huddersfield is able to, to make it in British eventing or in world uh, eventing and, and to stand at the pinnacle of the sport from very humble beginnings to achieving the, the, the greatest, uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, victory that you can achieve in the sport. Uh, and it, it is a message that he said last night. He said, if you work hard enough, you work hard enough, then you can accomplish anything. And, and it's a message that I've heard before. I remember speaking to Kate Richardson Walsh after... Great Britain won the hockey um, in Rio, and she said the exact same thing after after the after they won the gold medal, the first team British women's team to win the gold medal. And she said the message after this is: if you want something bad enough, and you work hard, you can do it. And it was lovely to hear those words repeated by Oliver last night. Now, Rishi, everybody knows that you're shamelessly glory hunting, and it just trying to go just trying to go anywhere where there's a gold medal so i'm guessing you were at the sa- i'm guessing you were at the sailing were you with your your swag bag picking up the best story there uh no sailing for me today a bit far away uh so i'm at the boxing today yeah medal chances there yeah pat mccormack goes uh later today um in the final of the welterweight now boxing isn't my forte lucky as you you know for it's, ne- it's never stopped you before <laughs> <laughs> Why do you always do this to me? Uh, but you're so right. Uh, so, but I, I'm, I'm having done a little bit of research on it. Um, it's clear that he is the, the one to beat, so to speak. Um, although, having said that, having just looked through his previous form guide, um, he has suffered defeat at the hands of a, of a Cuban fighter before. And he's up against a, a talented, rugged Cuban uh, in the final today. So... There's that little nagging doubt at the back of my mind, but he is he's the number one, so uh, he's hes a short price to win it. Well, I'm going to have to let our own rugged Trinidadian go now, so thank you very much for, for, <laughs> for, chat, for joining me from Tokyo. Cheers, Rish. So it is Tuesday, which means we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their stallion book and their global stallion app, and it's to Westmead. We head today to Starfield Stud and the owner, Mihal Orlandi, the man who stands six stallions, flat and national hunt, and who possibly has the distinction of wanting to be a stallion master at an earlier an earlier age than just about anyone else, possibly John Magner apart. Mihal, that's about right, isn't it? Thank you for taking your hit me on the head. Yeah, we stand six stallions here in Bunningar, County Westmead. And I'm delighted to be involved in the stallion game, stand stallions. And obviously, I'm, I'm relatively young in comparison to my peers. 
and I suppose I have the unique distinction of entering the industry not from your typical path per se, you know, through, you know, family connections, etc. Earn a herd stud farm. Uh, my stud is relatively small compared to my competitors. Stand and stand and start for stud, which is only 35 acres. We rent near 65 acres, give or take around us. But as studs go, we're more of a stallion station than, you know, per se, stud farm with thousands of acres. And, and why, I suppose, is the obvious question. What, what got you interested in it? What piqued your interest from a really, really young age? I suppose, um, you know, from not coming up from a racing background, uh, I had a huge, I was fortunate to be involved in show jumping, etc., and I had an interest in racing. And as time passed, I realised that stallions had the biggest influence on the industry as a whole. And uh, I was fascinated by that, and fascinated by stud books and so on and so forth. And um, I suppose, naively, I didn't understand how difficult it would be to stand a stallion and to make a success of a stallion. And so I suppose, naivety, uh, attracted me too because I wasn't aware of you know the complexity of, of, of the student of standing a stallion and uh, what's involved in it and the cost of buying a stallion and uh, I felt that if you got involved in the stallion market and uh, stood a stallion that was successful it would have huge impact industry as a whole I also do a bit of agency work and how much I enjoy that I can't really think of any agent per se that had a last, uh, you know, less lasting impact impact on the industry but stallions do probably more so than any trainer or jockey our owners, stallions, you know, our whole industry is built on breeding and, you know, the forefront of that are stallions. And um, I suppose that's what attracted me to it. I was fortunate opportunities arose to get involved in stallions and I started off with Capella San Severo. And he's with me now, well, he's four years, probably five years. So looking in business himself seven years and standing standing five years. And uh, he got the ball rolling. We were very fortunate that he was quite popular, you understood. And uh, from there, it just kind of motored on to have a snowball effect. And fortunate to be involved in six stallions now, four flat, two national hunt. And look forward to standing hopefully a new stallion next season in 2022. And do you know which your new stallion in 2022 is going to be? <laughs> no, not yet. All of us stallion masters were always kind of, you know, there's a number of stallions that, you know, draw you in and you look for a similar profile. Um, you know, at the moment, it's obvious that certain stallion sire lines, like Kodiak, for example, is doing very well. So, son of Kodiak will be obviously something attractive. And uh, Maymas is on fire, so obviously, son of Maymas would also, you know, hopefully go down very well with breeders in Ireland and across Europe. But it's difficult for someone like me because, you know, how many boxes do you want to tick? I'm very much a realist regarding the budget I have at my disposal and I get people involved with the stallions and it varies per stallion but you know I'm not just do I have to sell the stallion to them but I also make sure that uh, you know, they get a capital return or a return on their capital you know, investment on the stallion and it's a very difficult market because I'm up against established competitors whether it's Coolmore, Darley or more close to home Tally Ho or Tasker Stud, Ballyhane you know etc so it's, it's very difficult but then you see the likes of you know, the success of Maymas this year or Cody Bear for example that gives everyone kind of something like me great hope that you can buy that relatively inexpensive stallion start off at a lower base and eventually have a huge impact in the industry and you know come across a gem of stallion as you know my neighbours in Tallyho did with you know for example Kodiak and you're in the jumps game as well. Is that just for fun, or do you think that there's serious money to be made by by standing jump stallions? I think there's serious money to be made 
without shadow of doubt in a jumps game. Um, I think it's a totally different market to the flat market. Flat dining is much more international. The flat dining have a different lifespan. The credentials in the flat dining is different. Flat breeds are very different. You know, there's no, I would say there's, you know, there's very little overlap per se in flat national hunt. The beauty of national hunt is that a stallion can get a huge longevity in their career. Even if they're kind of semi-exposed, you know, give or take, they still can cover big books of mares for a number of seasons. And that's one thing flat stallions don't get. If a flat stallion doesn't cut the mustard, they're very much, you know, packed and parcel off somewhere else. They're not given the time the national stallion could be given, you know? And I think, you know, I look at the national market, and obviously, as you know, Nick, Coomore dominated here in Ireland. They have the most stallions, a couple of biggest book of mares. After that, then you got the likes of Boards Mill, Floods, Barry's Cashman's, and you know Conor Keith coming through, and I just think there's a huge opportunity there, and it's evident now. Standing a stallion like Galileo Chrome, you know we've over 150 mares covered. He ticks all the boxes, in my opinion, being a ledger winner. He went on beating, fantastic profile. His, you know, saying ledger last year, the form of it with you know with Mark Johnson's animal and uh, pile driver, etc., has worked out exceptionally well, and. You know, <laughs> It shows me that, you know, you can go out there, you can get the right model, ticks all the boxes, and the mares will come. And hopefully as time passes, he progress into a successful stallion of, you know, sire winners and so on and so forth. But it just, it kind of highlights to me that you don't have to go off to France or Germany and buy these semi-proven stallions, that you can actually stand the stallion, attract the mares, and hopefully make a success of it for everyone involved. Okay, so what's your point of difference? How do you get your message out there in a different way to all your competitors that you've already name-checked, who are already established, who are already doing well, and who are already hoovering up a crowded market? What? How are you at right angles to all of them, Michal? Well, I suppose our market would be a lot different to some degree. We did a Galileo Chrome chocolate bar that we posted on National Breeders in Ireland and the UK. And... Um, we obviously try to do things differently when it comes to the, to the space and advertising and marketing, the typical print media, how much we use a lot of it in Irish field and so on and so forth in the racing post. We do it a lot more on social media and so on and so forth. But when it comes to actually your model being different, um, you can try to, you know, obviously we try to differentiate ourselves from established competitors um, as well as establishing the brand. But to some degree, as you said, it's a crowded market that has to fundamentally want to use your style. And how much we can, you know, come out there with bells and whistles and do things differently. If they don't want to use a stallion, they won't use it. And I suppose, you know, Karashi was one example of a stallion that, you know, stood in the UK under the Darley banner at Overy Stud and wasn't overly popular. He only covered 20-odd mares. I think he had 24 life folds. But from that, he had, you know, 20 runners, 10 winners, 4 stakes animals. We went and we were fortunate enough to get him with Mr. Aziz under the Arabian banner and bring him back up from Australia. We reinvented it to some degree. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Irish breeders had to come and look at him, like him, take him, and decide to use him. You know? And we were fortunate that we got the rope of the green there. Uh, one thing that I've learned about the stallion industry is that, regardless of your own stallion, there's a lot of external factors you can't control. Whether a stallion's come to the marketplace when you go to stand a stallion. Um, and also momentum is very key and thanks to Karasha we've built up a bit of momentum under the Compass Stallion banner and from there we've you know we've gone and we've got far above this year Galera Chrome etc it's kind of a snowball effect and you're trying to attract breeders in and when you attract them in you're trying to hold on to them because it's easier to hold on to a client than you know gather a new client um, but obviously there's no secret formula where you're coming from you know left field trying to do things massively differently end of the day we're providing stallions to hopefully cover mares get mares in folds 
and eventually hopefully breed winners out of them stallions for all the breeders to come and use us. If you would accredit anyone with, with steering you in the right direction in this industry, Michal, who would it be? Oh, there's plenty of people, Nick. Hard to just pick one person. I suppose, you know, as I said, I don't come from the typical background. I was fortunate enough when I was in UCD in, in university. I met Madeleine Burns, who obviously introduced me to a father, Morris Burns, who was stud. I came back from, have, I was working in the US at the time, and I came back and met Morris in my graduation. And he offered me a job. I packed up, left my job in Boston, came back and worked for more from there. He introduced me to Mark Johnson and I suppose single handy Mark had the biggest influence in, in where I am now, how I change things, the way I do things. I learned a huge amount um, subconsciously by being in his company, being in his environment and you know, in Kingsley Park and uh, he has some fantastic staff I learned a lot from. And so I suppose if I had to take one person and um, if it wasn't Morris Burns, probably Mark Johnson. And still to this day, you know, as time passes, I can kind of reflect and I realise how much I learned in my, my short stint there in a couple of years there. Well, thanks to me, all to Rishi and to Lee Jordan earlier in the programme. Lee Mottishead is still here and has a tip for you for today. Well, Nick, the, the pre-Rothschild won't be quite as momentous a sporting event as the, the three-day eventing show jumping finale uh, on which uh, you commentated so expertly yesterday but i do think it's a belting group one i thought at york when prima baccio was successful she really looked like a horse who had a group one in it i think she's better than she showed in the farm mistake so i think that for team gb prima baccio in the pre rothschild is my tip today lee thanks so much looking forward to speaking to you again next week uh, thank you very much for listening we will see you again tomorrow but that was tuesday august the third bye-bye You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.